Now, Ann said next time she's going to do a whole concert by herself. She's not even looking at me. So <laughs> and I don't want to see that dirty look she gives me when she does. <laughs> it's great to see new faces in the, in the singing department, and it's always good to have that. And so we, we appreciate it. Good to see Dan back, too. Dan's back. What were you, Washington? Is that where you were? Maryland. That's, they're pretty close together, aren't they? So <laughs> anyway, if you would get your Bible and turn it with me to Colossians chapter 2, verse 11 through 15. Colossians chapter 2, verse 11 through 15. If I knew that I only had one more message to, pre- to preach before God carried me home, I believe without a doubt I would preach on the cross. Because to me, it's the most important thing that we have. Because of the cross, we're here today. Because of the, cry, because of the cross, we can have eternal life. Now, I also suspect that Apostle Paul, and I'm not comparing myself to Apostle Paul, so don't get offended, but I think that the Apostle Paul felt the same way. Because he was, from the moment that Jesus appeared to him, he was obsessed with the power and the wonder of the cross. He spoke of that time and time and time again. He wrote to the Christians in Corinth, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, he said, The heart of Christianity is the... Excuse me, this, this is not Paul saying this. This is just someone else who said this. Uh, someone said, The heart of Christianity is the Bible, and the heart of the Bible is the cross. And the heart of the cross is the very heart of God. That's a pretty good statement. Paul didn't make that. I messed that up a little bit, but Paul said that. But some of the most powerful words about the cross are found in the book of Colossians. And really, I think this passage we're about to read is one of the most powerful. I'm going to ask you if you would to stand with me. Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, going through verse 15. Let's read these words together. <clears throat> Colossians chapter 2, 11 through 15. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made <clears throat> without hands by putting off the old body of sin of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were also raised with him through the faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your trespasses and in uncircumcision of flesh, He has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed the principalities and powers, he made public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear God, we thank you, Lord, that we can come together and open your word together and Look at your words that you've spoken to us and how it applies to each one of us. And, Lord, we just ask you to go with us now for the next few minutes. Lord, if there be anyone in this room that does not know you as Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior, then, Lord, before we end this service, my prayer is that they would come to know you. Lord, if there's anyone that's away from you, has gotten away, that, Lord, this may be the day that they recommit and rededicate their life to serving you. And what an honor it is to do that. And, Lord, we just ask that you'd go with us. Open our hearts, open our minds, that we would listen to your word and what it just has said to us. All these things we ask in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. 
Have you ever noticed what we just read before? When I was beginning to prepare this a few weeks ago, I read this, and folks, I, I promise you, I've probably read Colossians 15 times, but I've never seen what we read this morning. Did anybody happen to catch it? It said what God nailed to the cross. I thought Jesus was nailed to the cross. Did you realize there's other things nailed to the cross that day that Jesus died? Yes, Jesus was a nail there. But yet, the Bible just told us that God nailed something to the cross. Let's look at this. The Roman soldier wasn't the only one with a hammer in his hand that day. Almighty God was nailing something to the cross as well. What really happened on the cross? What happened there? What, what's going on with this? In this age of computing, we've generated a new word. You ever heard the word multitasking? Now, if you deal with computers, and I use a computer, but if I multitask, it's because I mess something up and it's going two things at once. But multitasking literally means you can do several things at one time. And on computers, you can do that. I said, you can do it. I can't, but you can do it. But it's, if I do it, it just totally messes up my computer. But that's multitasking. And that's a new word since the computer age is coming to us. All that means is I can be doing one thing on the computer. At the same time, I can program my computer to do totally different things. And it's all working at the same time. Don't ask me to explain it. I can't begin to. But it's, that's what it means anyway. This means that you're working on a particular task. Your computer can be working on two, three, maybe more than that other processes simultaneously as you're doing what you're doing on the computer. Now, you may think that's neat, but let me share with you. God is the original multitasker. He can ignite the mighty sun in the sky to hold the planets in orbit. And at the same time, he can use that sun to ripen your tomatoes in your garden. God's multitasking. As I began, began to study this passage again, I had never noticed that little phrase. And God nailed those to the cross. He's talking about the Old Testament regulations. Now, we'll get into that a little bit in just a moment, but that's what he's talking about. In other words, we no longer have to... Do we keep the Old Testament laws? Of course we do. But what he's talking about, all the regulations and things that went in the Old Testament, all the things they had to do, the certain way to clean your hands and all this kind of thing they had to do, ritual after ritual after ritual. And so that's what he's talking about. He nailed those to the cross when Jesus was on the cross. And once Jesus died, the moment he died, those were passed. We don't have to do them anymore. But that doesn't mean we're out of the woods. There's a lot of things we still have to do. Now watch this. First of all, he nailed all my sin and shame to the cross. The reason we couldn't relate to a holy God on our own is because our lives were so full of wrong thoughts, wicked deeds, things like this, what we call sin. In fact, Colossians chapter 2.13 says, And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. Did you hear what that just said? Now think about that a minute. He has forgiven all of your trespasses. The moment you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, did you know that all of your sins yesterday, today, 
and in the future have already been forgiven? It's already been forgiven. Then why do we need to confess our sins? Because he told us to. But God's already forgiven our sins. From that day forward, from the day that you gave your life to Christ, it's already happened. You are destined, if you're a child of God, you're going to heaven one of these days. It may be next week. I hope not, but it may be for some. It may be 20 years from now. But whenever your time comes, you're going to heaven. That's a guaranteed fact. If that's not good, we can take this Bible and throw it in the trash because it's all worthless. But God says you're sealed already. You're sealed by the Holy Spirit. The Romans crucified thousands of criminals. And it was customary to place a sign above each one of their heads, the person that's being crucified. The sign listed the name of their, the sign listed the name of their crime. For instance, a typical sign may something like this, say something like this: Simon Bar Reuben, murderer. This sign was called a titleus, from which we get our English word title. Perhaps you've seen the depictions of the crucifixion of Jesus and that sign up over the head, and it's got four little lines. That's not one sentence. It's the same thing in four different languages. In fact, it says, I-N-R-I. The Latin phrase, Jesus Nazarenus Rex Ludorium. Now, I'm not very good at Latin, so you all bear with me. That might be close. It may not be. I don't know. When Pilate examined Jesus, he said the words, remember, I find no fault with this man. He could find nothing wrong that would justify being crucified of Jesus. He told them. I can't find anything wrong with this guy. What do y'all want to put him to death for? They didn't want to put him to death for what he had done. They wanted to put him to death for what he had said. He claimed to be the Son of God. That made them furious. And that's why they wanted to crucify him. And they did, for that matter. I find no fault with this man. But the Jews demanded uh, crucifixion of Jesus. So Pilate mocked them by having a sign placed above their heads. I mean, he did this to really aggravate them, like the best line to put it, to mock them a little bit. And over that sign, it had those four words I just told you. Now, I didn't pronounce them right, I'm sure, but just bear with me. They wanted him to take that sign down and change it. And they demanded he change it. They said, he claimed to be the king of the Jews. He's not our king and never was. But Pilate said, what I have written... I have written. That's found in John 19, 20, 22. The Bible says that Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And he said, I'm not taking it down. And oh, that made them mad. But they got what they wanted. They got Jesus crucified nonetheless. In John chapter 19, verse 20, 19 20 is where we read that part we just, just said. Aramaic was a spoken language of Hebrew. It was a spiritual language of the covenant relationship with God. Latin was the language of the Roman Empire. It represented power, government, conquest, and so forth. Greek was the international language of culture, representing philosophy, art, commerce, these kind of things. So without realizing what he had done, Pilate was announcing Jesus is king over all these areas of life. We thought he just put that sign up there. 
No, God directed his hands to write it exactly how he wanted, and it came out that way. They didn't like it. But what Pilate did that day was let people know, he's not only king of your life, he's king of the government, he's king of culture, he's king of everything there is. And so he announced it without even saying a word, and what he thought was doing a a bad thing. God turned it into something tremendous. On the cross, by the way. When Jesus went to the cross, the only crime that Pilate accused him of was being a king. But there was an unseen titleless on the cross, written by the finger of God, as we read through that minute ago, when it said, And God nailed this to the cross. Written by the finger of God, and on it listed all of my sin that I've done in the past and I will ever do. And he nailed it to the cross. God did. While Jesus was hanging on the cross, the finger of hand, the finger of God wrote it on that cross. It was God who placed our sins upon Jesus. According to Isaiah 53, 6, the Bible says, We are all like sheep and have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Did you realize that your sins held Jesus to the cross? Did you realize that your sins were on the back of Jesus that day? You know why God could not stand to look upon the cross If you read the crucifixion story, God turned his face from him. Because here was all the sins of the world, yours and mine and our grandkids and everybody else that comes along. Until Jesus comes back, your sins were up on his back, and he could not stand to look at that. Because it looked so ugly in his eyes. Here this perfect Lamb of God had my sins upon his back and your sins upon his back. But thank God he did, because otherwise there would have been no hope for us. There had been nothing we could have done. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 says this about the cross. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. I've heard people say, in fact, I remember hearing a, a preacher one day say this. Jesus Christ wanted to go to the cross i got news for him. That's not what my Bible says. My Bible says he prayed three times the night before not to do it. Jesus did not want to go to the cross, but he did want to do what God's will for his life was, and that was to go to the cross. Let's look at it. I mean, that cross would not have been a happy thing. The crucifixion, the form of crucifixion of that death was considered the shame of the cross. I mean, it's most of the time, now we don't see pictures of this for obvious reason, but most of the time they were crucified naked just to increase the shame for them. I mean, just, it's just humiliating as they were hanging on this cross. Shame, ugliness, all these things. Jesus did not want to do that, but he did want to do God's will, and God's will says that's the only way we can do it, and Jesus did it. Did you catch that, though? Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Whoa, whoa, whoa. you just said he didn't want to go. Why is he joyful about it? Well, bear with me just a second. 
The phrase despising the shame means that even though Jesus found the sin and the shame and the cross revolting, horrible, he endured it anyway. He despised it anyway. He embraced it. In his grace, he embraced my disgrace. So see what Jesus was really doing? He was going to the cross for every one of us here today. He went to the cross for each one of us. Because if he had not done what he had done, none of us would have the possibility of ever going to heaven. Because I know most of you, and I know most of you, some I know better than others, and I know you're not. But there's not a person in this room good enough to go to heaven. Nobody. Because one little sin will separate us from God. And every one of you have told little fibs, done little things like this. You say, well, that's just, that's not a big sin. To God it is. Those thoughts we have sometimes, those can keep you out of heaven. But Jesus, for the joy of the cross. Now, the cross was not a joyful experience, I'm, I guarantee you. But what he's saying is, from the joy that he got of giving his life for yours, he was willing to go to the cross. That's amazing when you sit down and think about it. I mean, this is God himself in form of man went to the cross for me. And let me tell you, probably out of this room, I'd probably be the least deserving of anyone here. And God did it just for me the same way. He went for each one of us. Let's move on a little bit. He embraced us. He embraced the disgrace. He embraced the humility that he must have faced. He despised it, but he embraced it. He embraced my disgrace. If you're a Christian, you can rejoice because you don't have to carry the weight of your sin and shame anymore. Because what Jesus did on the cross, he took all that back. He put it on his shoulders, and God nailed it to the cross. The Bible says when Jesus died in Colossians chapter 2, verse 14, having wiped out the handwriting of the requirements that was against us. That's talking about the Old Testament. Colossians chapter 2, verse 14. Eugene Peterson, now I don't know how many of you read the message, the form of the uh, version of the Bible, the message. It's a trend, uh, not a translation, it's a uh, well, transliteration. And it's just, he puts it into words of English, and it's, it's pretty good sometimes. I, I, I don't read it a whole lot, but listen to this, how he described this. Think of it. All sins forgiven... The slate, wiped clean, the slate wiped clean, that old arrest warrant canceled and nailed to the cross. God had an arrest warrant for each one of us. But because Jesus died on the cross, the moment he died, God took that hammer and nailed it to the cross and said, it's all forgiven. You've got a way out now. We're looking at one of the most life-changing passages in Scripture, if you really get down and think about it. Colossians 2, verses 11 through 15. Many Christians are confused about what parts of the Old Testament we should obey today. And there's a lot of discussion about it. For instance, they ask, is all the Bible true? Well, first of all, yes, it is. If any part of the Bible is not true, you might as well throw it away. It's useless. But every word. We're fixing to start a study in Revelation coming up. In fact, um, 
I'll just make a little announcement about it. We were going to do it on Wednesday nights, and we got together Wednesday night and talked about it. And there's been other people who said, well, we'd like to come. We can't come on Wednesday night, but how about us do it on Sunday night? So we're going to probably do it on Sunday night now. It's still going to start in September. I've still got a whole lot to get ready for it, but it's, we're, going, we're going to get there, I promise you. But hopefully about the second week of September, we're going to start a study on Revelation on Sunday night. And so keep that in mind. We'll just do something on, on Wednesday nights and just have a good time doing that. And, but we're going to find something to eat and have a good time with. You know, Baptists, when they get together, they've got to have something to eat. But we'll do that anyway. But it's, uh, now I forgot where I was going with that. I got off track on that. See, started talking about food and messed me up. For instance, people ask, is all the Bible true? Yes, it is. You can take that to the bank. If you look at the book of Revelation, one of the things that's neat about the book of Revelation is you start in Genesis and it ends in Revelation. The whole book runs together and you see things that happen in Genesis that end in Revelation. For instance, in Genesis chapter 2, you're introduced for the first time the snake, Satan, the devil, whatever term you want to use. The last two chapters of Revelation... Don't mention him. You know why? He's already been put in his place by God. The whole book ties together and ends in Revelation. It's an amazing book. I know people get worried about, well, I don't understand all those pictures that you're drawing on your head and all that. Don't worry about it. Look at the book of Revelation. Number one, it says one thing is so neat. Did you know the, Revela- the book of Revelation tells you if you'll read and study this book, you will be blessed? It's the only book that says that. But it also, it takes the whole Bible and ties it together in a sense. Things that started in Genesis end in Revelation. It's, it's really a neat book, and we get, we get afraid of it. I don't want to spend too much time on that, but anyway. But let's look at all the Old Testament regulations. There are hundreds of rules and regulations God set down for the Jews dealing with diet, festivals, hygiene, uh, sacrificial system of the temple. There's a, even a verse in Deuteronomy. And by the way, my, I've got my son and my grandson here today, and he don't know, but I almost recalled this Old Testament as he was growing up, his, this Old Testament verse. In De- Deuteronomy chapter 21, it says, The way to deal with a stubborn, rebellious teenage son is to take him outside the city gates and stone him to death. Now, he don't realize how close that came to being in his life a couple of times. But that's what the Bible tells us that. That's in Deuteronomy chapter 21. Look it up. Some parents might be interested in keeping that one around. <laughs> so I don't know. But if, anyway, of course, the most common question is, why don't we observe the Sabbath day? We won't get in that day, but we may make that into a little Bible study here not too long because that's interesting how those things come about. But because they're addressed in the book of Colossians, you may be in for surprise. In order to understand what was nailed to the cross, we must make distinction between moral law of God and ceremonial ceremonial regulations of the Old Testament. Now, there's two totally different things. The moral law of God, the Ten Commandments, yeah, we're to keep those, every one of us, every day. I know we don't do that sometimes, but we're, we're supposed to. But some of those ceremonial regulations is what God nailed to the cross. Because they don't apply to us anymore after Christ was done. 
you'll see that you don't have to observe the Old Testament festivals like they did in the Old Testament, the ceremonial regulations. But we do have to obey the moral law of God. Do not commit murder. Do not steal, and so forth. You know those. Jesus said, Do not think that I came to destroy the law of the prophets. I did not come to destroy them, but to fulfill them. Matthew five seventeen. The Old Testament commands all find fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Wait a minute. How could it do that? Jesus wasn't even in the New Te- Old Testament. Oh, yes, he was. Do you realize the ark is a picture of Jesus? There's many pictures of Jesus in the Old Testament. Jesus is all through the Old Testament. But sadly, many people, even some calling themselves Christians, are trying to live by the Old Testament regulations instead of the laws. As Jesus was hanging on the cross, he was fulfilling the Old Testament sacrificial regulations. He became the Lamb of God for that very purpose. Remember when John was out in the out baptizing and he saw Jesus coming, he says, Behold, here comes the Lamb of God. He was already designated as a sacrificial lamb for me and you and everyone else of the sins of the world. As he breathed his last words, last breath, he shouted, Tete Lestia, which means it is finished. That word literally means it is fulfilled. What he was saying is the plan that God has for mankind is finished. There's nothing else you have to do. There's nothing else you can do other than accept the plan, Jesus Christ. About a quarter mile from the cross stood the Jewish temple. Inside the innermost building were two rooms, one called the most holy place. The other was called the Holy of Holies. Inside the Holy of Holies, it was believed that the presence of Jehovah dwelt in his Shekinah glory. No person could enter into the Holy Holies except one man, the high priest. And then he could only enter that room one time a year for just a short period, just a few hours, on what we even today still call Yom Kippur. It's a Jewish holiday. You're familiar with it, I'm sure. That's the only day that he could go, even the high priest, the highest ranking man in the church, could only go in there one day a year for just a few hours. Now, what's so special about that? There was a large, thick curtain hanging between these two rooms. According to the Jewish historian Josephus, the curtain was 60 feet tall and 30 feet wide, and it was as thick as a man's hand. The moment Jesus died, that curtain was torn from top to bottom. Now, this is a high ceiling. It wasn't a stepladder to get up the top of it. It was a high ceiling. From the moment that Jesus died, that curtain was ripped from the top to bottom, indicating that God ripped it and took away that division between God and man. You no longer have to go to a high priest to have your prayers answered. You don't have to go to anybody. You don't have to come to me. You can bow yourself before God and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Whatever, whatever need you may have. In other words, the, the open throne to heaven has been opened to each one of us, and we have direct access to God now. 
That'd make a Baptist shout when. Think about that. The moment that Jesus died, that curtain was torn, and it was a symbol that God had taken it out of the way. You have access to God if you're a child of God today. You can, you can pray a prayer, and God Almighty will stop and listen to what you're praying. Oh, that can't be true. That's what the Bible tells us. God always hears us. Doesn't mean he always answers like we want him to, but he always hears us. You don't need the ceremonial regulations anymore. The priest had to be shocked when this happened. But after their initial shock, the rest of the stories old Paul Harvey used to say, they repaired the curtain and continued the same old rituals they had done before. Until 70 A.D., when Jerusalem was overtaken and destroyed. Those regulations were nailed to the cross. You are set free from the law. We don't have to obey the Old Testament regulations. We still obey the Ten Commandments and other things. What else was there? Number three, all of Satan's power. There was something else that was nailed to that cross that day. Satan's authority and power was nullified on the cross. I was looking for a nicer way to say this, but I'll just say it the way I come up with it. God nailed Satan's hide to the cross that day. And that's what he did. The Bible says in Colossians 2.15, Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing, triumphing over them in it. Anytime you hear somebody say, Satan is alive and well on this planet. And I know there was a book written many years ago, and it's an excellent book. It says Satan is alive and well on planet Earth. Well, let me tell you something. That's not correct. Satan is alive, but since the cross, he isn't very well anymore. He knows he's a doomed creature. He knows his time's coming. He knows his game's about up. Why do you think he's trying to do everything he can to influence so many people? Because he knows his days are numbered. I don't know when his day is, but it, it's numbered. That's, that's given. 1 John chapter 3, 8 says, For this purpose... The Son of God was manifest that he might destroy the works of the devil. Hebrews 2.14 tells us, So by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. Satan is a destroyed creature. Now, he's still around right now, but he knows his days are numbered. You don't have to fear Satan anymore. You don't have to bow to Satan anymore. Jesus Christ defeated him at the cross. Let's look at three things that show that about the cross. Number one, the march into Jerusalem. One day before the resurrection, before resurrection Sunday, Jesus rode a little donkey into Jerusalem. Y'all remember that story? We call it Palm Sunday, because the people waved palm branches. In a lot of the Bibles, there are titles over the portion of scriptures, and many times over sections like Luke chapter nineteen, verse twenty-eight, it says triumphal entry. What was triumphant about it? He was going to his death. In fact, while he rode in, he stopped and said these words. As Jesus approached the city, he wept over it. That doesn't sound too triumphant to me. He was going, and he knew he was going to the cross. That doesn't sound too triumphant. Why do we, how do we get triumphant Sunday? He knew that the crowd that was shouting, shouting crown him would just in a few days be shouting, crucify him. 
the people yelling, Hail Him, would soon be saying, Nail Him. Second thing, the march of the, with the cross. Then on the morning that Jesus was crucified, He was part of another procession, a march. After He had been beaten, tortured, and mocked, they laid a heavy cross on His back and made Him carry it to the place of the skull where He'd be crucified. As he walked down the narrow streets of Jerusalem, people lined the streets and were spitting on him and cursing him and hitting him and all different kind of things. They mocked him as he walked through the narrow streets of Jerusalem. That doesn't sound too triumphant, does it? Sandy Patty, a few years ago, or some years ago, it's been quite a while, about 10 years ago, I guess now, she had a song come out. It's called The Via Dolorosa. It means the way of suffering. Let me give you some words of that because it's a beautiful song. The words say, Down the Via Dolorosa in Jerusalem that day, the soldiers tried to clear the narrow street, but the crowd pressed in to see. The man condemned to die on Calvary. He was bleeding from a beating. There those straps were upon his back, and he wore a crown of thorns upon his head. And he bore with heavy step, every step the scorn of those who cried out for his death. Down the Via Dolorosa, called the way of suffering. Like a lamb came the Messiah, Christ the King, but he chose to walk that road out of his love for me and you. Down the Via Dolorosa, all the way to Calvary. Aren't those beautiful words? That's what Jesus did for us. He suffered so much for us. And we take it so lightly sometimes today. People today still, I understand, I've never been to Jerusalem, but I understand this is supposed to be true. I'm going to say it that way. Today, on the narrow streets of Jerusalem, on Friday mornings, they still, they have 12 places they call the Stations of the Cross. They still walk that path week after week after week. I can't verify that. I've never been over there. I just, I read that, and so I'm passing it on. Hundreds of paintings depict Jesus entering into Jerusalem and His procession to Calvary. But there are no paintings of the next parade we're going to look at. The march, this march was not witnessed by human hands, so it would be impossible to reproduce it. But it was the march of triumph. Now, that wasn't the march of triumph we just looked at, even though the Bible says the triumphant march. A lot of headings say that. This is the march of triumph. Colossians chapter 2, 15 that we just read. And having disarmed principalities and powers, he made public spectacle of them, triumphing over them. The word triumphing over means to lead prisoners in a victory march of the army. When an army would go out and do battle and they would capture the other army, especially the generals and things, they'd put them at the front of the line, they'd march them through town, and all these people would cheer and then they probably put on to death most of the time, at least the generals and the, the leaders. But all the army would be marched down, and they would mock them and laugh at them and shout at them and probably throw stones. I, I don't know what they, all they did. The picture is of a military possess, procession leading captives of war. That's what the March of the Cross actually represents. Here's this king of the Jews, and they beat him. He's going in humility to his death. But, oh, they didn't know the end of the story. Oh, they didn't know the rest of the story. Even though he hung on that cross, even though he bled, even though he died physically, that wasn't the end of the parade. 
Just days later, one Sunday morning, Mary and Mary ran to the tomb, and they were so upset because somebody had stolen the body of Jesus. How could they do that? They ran back, and John and Peter ran to the tomb. John was the first one to get there, he says, and he ran in there, and he confirmed they've stolen his body. And just a short time later, what we call the road of the mouse, two men were walking down there, and all of a sudden there's a third guy joined them. And he asked them, what's so, what's so sad? What's going on? Oh, they stopped us. Our movement. Christianity, they stamped it out. They killed our leader. The Bible says they went on to town and they asked him to stay and have dinner with them. And they sat down. They realized who it was. Can you imagine that? Here's this man that just witnessed being crucified. He was alive eating breakfast with them. Probably McDonald's breakfast. I don't know. But alive, and I looked at Brother Felton. That's what made me think of McDonald's. <laughs> but here they were. They had been crying and weeping and sad. A dark, dark day. But all of a sudden, Jesus burst to the grave. And he was no longer alive, no longer dead. He was alive. He was alive. He was alive forevermore. Let me close this out. What does all this mean for us? Because of the cross, you don't have to suffer shame of your sins. Jesus did. Because of the cross, you don't have to live according to a long list of do's and don'ts, rules that we could never fulfill. You can enjoy God's grace. Because of the cross, you don't have to fear the devil. He is a defeated foe today, folks. If you resist the devil, the Bible says he will flee from you. But don't ever forget there's something else that was nailed to the cross that day. More correctly, I should say someone else. It was Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who offered himself for the sacrifice of our sins. Don't ever forget that part. Let me close with this. When we look at the cross, we ought to see Jesus is looking into each one of our hearts with a gaze of unconditional love saying, John fifteen thirteen, greater love has no man than this, than to lay down his life for his friends. That's what Jesus did for us. Wouldn't you want to follow a man like that? Wouldn't you want to be part of that? We hear that we're no longer a Christian nation. We're going down and down and down. But folks, as long as there's a remnant of Jesus Christ followers, there will be a Christian people in this land. We may not be the minority anymore, but that doesn't mean we can't change the majority. Jesus Christ is alive. Do you know him this morning? If you don't know him, the greatest mistake you could do, not because of me or anybody in this church, don't leave this church without him. Don't leave here. There's been too many people on this highway right here we call 190 that have met their death. Did you know there's not a guarantee for anybody in this room that you'll be back next Sunday? Nobody. But if you die without Jesus, you'll get to go someplace, but it's not going to be where you want to go. Do you know Jesus this morning? You can. Maybe you're here this morning and you just turned your back on God for different reasons. It happens. 
We all get upset sometimes. We get out of church perhaps. Maybe today God's saying, I need you back. I need you back serving. I need you back teaching. I need you back singing. I need you back whatever you've done or want to do for that matter. Will you come back? Maybe that's the call for you this morning. Maybe you just need to bow these steps and say, Lord, I'm just not the man, the woman that I need to be. And I want to change that today. Jesus paid everything for us. Is it asking too much for us to pay a little bit to him? Let's stand together this morning. Dear God, we come to close this service. We just ask that you would just be with us. Lord, I don't know the hearts of men and women here today, but you do. Lord, you know the needs in each one of their lives. And, Lord, my prayer is that you would speak to each one. Lord, that you would be with them, that you can open the doors of their heart and whatever need they may have. They may be going through a sickness right now. They may be facing some illness. They may be family crisis or financial crisis, whatever it is. Lord, if they would just turn to you and trust you, you would be there to see them through. Lord, teach us to love you as much as you loved us. Thank you, Lord, this day. As we go this verse of invitation, in Christ's name, amen.